collective violence and collective actions. What's the best way to go? I'm here this morning with David Olney and a very special guest, Peter Thompson. How are you? Uh, uh, good morning. I'm very well, thank you. And how are you? I'm doing well. And David, doing well. I'm, I'm, being, sure. I'm being quiet because I'm letting everyone else say good morning first for a change. <laughs> good morning, everyone. <laughs> and we all sound like we're well. That's good. That's good. So, if you guys, you know, uh, pardon my ignorance, if you could perhaps even David shed a little bit of light on on the, the collective violence, collective action. I'm not even sure what they what they are. I think I'll start with a historical way to try and put this in context for everyone. During the French Revolution, lots of people watched from England going, oh, this revolution thing looks awful. It's unleashing violence. It's making a mess. One of the best people to theorize it was a British anarchist called William Godwin. And what he concluded is if you are willing to unleash the genie of violence to try and bring about utopia... What you bring about instead of bringing about utopia is you legitimate the use of violence any time you're sick of the system and what it is or isn't achieving. So instead of moving closer towards utopia, collective violence just leads to more collective violence. And he coined a term in contrast to this, and it was the path he thought England was on. And he called it evolutionary revolution, where at each stage People fight collectively through collective action. They go on strike together. They support each other until they get a little win. And then they push for another little win, but never by resorting to violence that will cause the system to react so extremely that everything is broken or lost. So we get a contrast between, in France, violent action led to absolute chaos in the 1790s through to Napoleon stamping authoritarianism on France and a huge chunk of Europe. Now, Napoleon achieved all sorts of amazing things and in a lot of ways shaped modern Europe. But France really lost its democratic moment for over a century. On the other hand, in Goldman's England that was going down this path of evolutionary revolution, there kept being little gain after little gain. And this doesn't mean that the Industrial Revolution wasn't squalid. It doesn't mean that people weren't put through the machine. But it means the little gains by the middle and working class were consolidated until at a certain point the idea of the male franchise and then the female franchise could not just be imagined by radicals, but could be imagined by people who'd seen little gain after little gain over a century, and these were just the next logical gains to fight for. That seemed like a reasonable explanation of the, the two extremes, Peter? Yeah, I would say so. Now, Tim, you were the one that wanted a, 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 you know, a definition to get you started. Yes. What, what questions you got? Okay, so the instances of revolution that you we're talking about, say, France or even uh, Russia as well. So th those acts of violence, it seemed, I think, at, at the time as if that was the only way to kind of get things done. And I don't think that that is a silly thing to say because that is exactly no. the reason why, say, something like the Second Amendment in uh, the American Constitution exists. It was the First Amendment, sorry. Yeah, I, I never remember what number. The thing just makes <laughs> me cringe because something that was meant to protect society has mm. been turned into you know, 
loopy Americanism. <laughs> now, Americans out there listening, feel free to be angry. You're loopy. <laughs> you know, guns are okay. Everyone having semi-automatic weapons, not so okay. Hmm. But to jump back to a wonderful example of what you're talking about, that sometimes violence is the thing. Franz Fanon, who was a black African who fought to liberate France hmm. during World War II, got some major French medals for doing so. When he went back to Africa after the war, he really came up with the argument that in order to get the yoke of colonialism off and to recover from oppression, that violence was actually cathartic. And I can see the psychological appeal of redemption through violence seeming like a way to re-empower yourself. But look how well that ended for Africa. In the main, there was violent revolutions to get independence. There was you know, soft uh, paths to independence, the end of colonization. And in most cases, Africa ended up with brutal African dictatorships that are used and abused their people as well as the Europeans had because they'd learnt all their lessons on how to use and abuse from the Europeans. So cathartic violence in most cases in the short term didn't counter the conditioning to colonial, authoritarian slash aristocratic European violence. Mm. Mm. Well, we're talking about these different kind of modes of violence and the revolution and micro-revolution, it, uh, it just got me curious, was there something particular to the English situation that meant that they could have these little micro-revolutions, these micro-violent uh, events without tearing down the whole system, or, or is that just a, a coincidence of something? A coincidence I wonder if historically that? if the experiences of you know, Cromwell, you know, regicide, kings being killed, William of Orange turning up, that historically they had had so many close calls with the obliteration of the system in the pre-industrial era that thankfully they didn't try and do revolution you know, under industrialism, which would have meant more and better weapons. So I wonder if it's actually because the history was so violent that they kind of recognised that mass violence is not, in the end, it may be psychologically cathartic, but it is not politically effective. And maybe that's a key distinction. Something can be psychologically cathartic, but that doesn't make it politically effective. Now, that's an interesting point that I've been uh, thinking about quite recently. Um, in, our, in our modern landscape, I often see, especially uh, you know, people our age, Tim, uh, students, who go really hammer and tongs. And I often wonder whether or not they're not going a little bit harder than it is appropriate and they're actually spoiling their chances of, uh, let's say, revolution with uh, a kind of unbridled aggression that makes the other side defensive or even worse, combative. Well, you cause the other side to react. Mm. So really when you walk through campus and you know the, the current generation of leftists are out who are, it appears to me, preaching a variant of unreconstructed Marxism without much add-on of sophisticated environmentalism or understanding of the true nature of human society, they sound very angry. Mm. And I can understand why, because everything Marx said that capitalism would win and smash is true, 
but also capitalism has liberated more people from poverty than anything in human history. Mm. It's brutal, but it's also brutally efficient if humans choose to manage it. So, you know, golly, we just keep opening up cans of worms. We keep mm-hmm. moving from one big thing here to the next even bigger thing. So uh, it seems it's really important in this, Peter, that it's the difference between are you doing cathartic violence to redeem yourself over practical circumstances to try and make them better, or are you doing violence uh, in service to a utopian ideology that may or may not be achievable. Mm. So it would seem to me that the original leftist revolutionary action, whether it be anarchist or communist, was violence for the sake of utopian ideology, which we can see worldwide didn't work. Mm. What are we seeing now in these angry young people? Have they got the potential for violence for ideology again? That's a really interesting question. You know, humans don't learn from generation to generation. That's obvious. <laughs> so could we repeat that thing again of a, a you know, an educated, angry vanguard class winding up enough people for violence? It feels as it like it's it's exactly as you say. It's it's it breeds reactions because all I'm seeing is that people are progressively be get like becoming angrier on either side of mm. every argument that we're having. Jonathan hates righteous mind argument. When it gets too complicated and too hard, everyone retreats to their moral perspective, which is very clear and can't be argued with. Mm. And therefore they can't interact effectively because they're not in the real physical moment. They're comparing each other's worlds from a moral perspective that is above and beyond experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. Eek, we opened up a can of worms this week. <laughs> I, think, I think we might have, actually. <laughs> I, I question whether, you know, it's easy to feel like, let's say maybe the first instance of aggression, right? It's easy to feel as if the more passive, if that's the way you want to describe them, the more passive forms of, let's say, revolution or um, passive forms of inciting change don't get you very far. It's really easy to feel powerless when you're trying to do those kinds of things and when when you kind of hark back to looking at the fact that we're all humans we're all vulnerable to you know uh, violence in some respect that going back to that kind of um fight evens out the playing field because you don't have to with violence you don't have to worry about what class you're in it's 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 completely let's say fair that everyone is on the same playing ground. We're all vulnerable to the same kinds of attacks. It's, I suppose that's where the violent thing perhaps comes from. I don't know. That's interesting because in the main, the elite have control over the best tools of violence. Mm. They have the best trained people. They have the best technology. They have the best organisation. They tend to be the class that manage and apply violence or have control over that class. Mm, mm. So look at Venezuela today. And we're not waiting to see whether the population can change the future of Venezuela. We're looking to see if the Venezuelan military will change side. Right. And going back to the to your example earlier of uh, of America and and again, you know, um, apologies to all of our American listeners, but it doesn't seem like 
the country could be saved by enough people with semi-automatic weapons in comparison to the government's resources of mm. drones, satellites. Yeah, and everything else. It made sense in the 18th century. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, I'm not by any way saying take weapons away. No, not But I am saying there needs to be logical rules about, you know, how many assault rifles the average citizen needs. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem obvious that people need an entire arsenal. Um sitting in their garage you know See, commitment um, is a hugely powerful thing so if we look you know in western china at the moment the chinese are happy well, happily locking uyghurs mm. in re-education camps you know what are they calling them vocational education no yeah. it's re-education verging on concentration yeah mm. between probably 2011 and 2015 was very hard to find in the western press mm. but you had uyghurs getting on trains waiting till it pulled out, pulling out a kitchen knife and stabbing as many people as they could before the next station where the Chinese paramilitary police would put them down. You just need motivation. And that, at one level, is what's most terrifying about humans. Committed humans don't need many tools. Mm -hmm. Committed humans are incredibly dangerous. Mm. But committed humans, until Sri Lanka in the 1980s and the beginning of modern suicide bombing and everyone forgets this modern suicide bombing didn't start in the middle east it didn't start in the muslim mm. world it started in sri lanka with people who had no sense of getting a prize after death for doing it mm. wow. they did it for the sake of family and community wow. knowing i'm getting nothing but my community might get something mm. and you know when a very pretty young woman in a summer dress you know blew up senior indian politicians that was a holy shit moment mm. for so much of the world that that's what commitment looks like. I can't remember what year it happened in the late 19th century, but there was a massive meeting in Italy, either late 1880s or early 1890s, because the nihilists and anarchists had proven to be so dangerous because they literally would walk up to somebody, pull the cigarette out of their mouth, use it to light the stick of dynamite in the hand mm. and chuck it at the last millisecond at the target with very little regard for their own lives. And it was just decided the nihilists in Europe must be destroyed. They are just too committed and therefore too dangerous. Mm. Bizarre. So this whole question of commitment, every now and then commitment rears its head again. And when you've got that level of commitment, violence becomes even more frightening because it's not you're going to do the violence and you have to live. You're going to do the violence to change the world. And it's that act of redemption and transformation that is so powerful and so frightening. Mm. So part of the revolution is it was a big bloody mess, literally. But who was willing to die for that better world? Most of them wanted to kill for that better world, mm. but not die for it. And if we look at, say, the 1848 revolutions across Europe, a lot of people were willing to kill for democracy but not many people were willing to die for it. So all the 1848 revolutions failed, which is quite fascinating to have multiple revolutions simultaneously and they all failed. Was that the strength of the state or the strength of the state in conjunction with the lack of commitment was high enough to need, want redemptive violence, but not strong enough to be willing to do genuinely transformative violence? Oh, golly. Do you think, so there is 
there is transformative violence, though. It's, I think there has to be. Mm, absolutely. Because, you know, those, those first Sri Lankans, Tamils, who blew themselves up, changed Sri Lankan and Indian politics forever. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. And would you say Western example that I can think of, would you say that, like, assassinations of, say, like, JFK, something like that, that would, in, in like, that's quite dramatic. I mean, after that, you, you got Nixon, right? Was that, am I getting that timeline right? Yeah. Oh, where well, you go from Kennedy to uh, Johnson, then to yeah. um, blah, 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 Nixon, then to Ford. Yeah, you have a, a, a pattern of just very strange and different presidents. <laughs> but that, but like if you say if JFK weren't assassinated, that would have put America on an entirely different path. Mm. Well, we would have seen if he had the ability to follow through on his rhetoric. Well, true. You know, most of the great books on this seem to suggest that Johnston did a remarkable job of turning you know, Camelot's rhetoric into reality. Mm. And, you know, it needs to be given a lot more credit than he probably normally is for how much he achieved as the vice president who had to take over and Mm. try and bring about massive transformation. But even there, again, we don't know for sure who killed JFK. Mm. It seems quite clear it just wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm. Um, There's a wonderful documentary by an Australian detective where he is absolutely convinced that a Secret Service agent where they'd been out partying the night before who was hammered, slipped, and one round went off from an M16 in the car behind. Whoa. And that, and that that is why they had to steal chunks of Kennedy's brain and disappear them because they would have found that it was a round from a Secret Service weapon. Wow. And I have to say, when this documentary was on SBS, I sat there going, this guy's got to be mad. And by about 10 minutes, I'm in, no, this guy's a bloody good detective. <laughs> by an hour in, I'm going... I'm going to watch this another three times on iView. Yeah. <laughs> or not iView, SBS On Demand, whatever it's called. Because it's like this is the most logical explanation mm. for both the angle of the kill shot mm. and for all the bullshit after mm. is he was actually killed by a Secret Service agent. It was a horrible accident. Now, it appears that so Lee Harvey Oswald took a shot at the same time and that Lee Harvey Oswald's shot rang out and that's when the Secret Service agent stood up, slipped, around oh. went off and that's what killed Kennedy. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Now, he's gone and done the whole thing with lasers in Texas to line up and all lines up. Bizarre. But So I would argue that there, that's not transformative violence because no one was really willing to die. Yeah. And someone followed through on the behavior so we get something okay another world war or another 20th century example um, the attempt to kill hitler by senior officers Mm -hmm. don't set a multi-minute timer don't try and survive the bomb Mm. don't put the bomb under the table put the bomb in the briefcase with a three second timer put the briefcase on the table open the briefcase press the button smile at the evil bastard and go bye bye cretin Mm. So the lack of commitment of the conspirators to actually genuinely, you know, they thought, oh, we're willing to risk our lives. Most of them ended up on butcher's hooks. Mm. If one of them had the guts to do the job properly, more of them would have survived. (laughs) That's That's an interesting little angle. But something's been flittering around in my mind since we've been talking about all of this. We've been talking about transformative violence. But I was wondering, um, uh, uh, David and Tim, what your 
opinions were on transformative nonviolence. And and I was wondering why you think nonviolence, let's say instead of a suicide bomber, we could take the uh, the monk who uh, doused himself in, yeah. in gasoline. Incredibly and, famous footage from Vietnam. Mm. Or, uh, or perhaps uh, I, I think it would have been in one of the Scandinavian countries, maybe Denmark, maybe uh, Sweden or Norway, but they had a national women's strike. Mm. Mm-hmm. A day without women, thirty, thirty or forty years yeah. ago, which was incredibly transformative. Why do those things work? I'd, well, I'd like I was thinking about Gandhi before, as we were talking about oh, the right. ninth century. That's a good one. And just going, okay, India is the ultimate proof. <laughs> let let the colonial power be the abusers. Don't sink to their level. Mm. So yeah, are we back to our moral compass thing? That our moral compasses tell us to please try the nonviolent path first. Mm. Is, is that actually the key thing, that how your moral compass points will determine which side of this debate you end up on? Because I can... No, how do you imagine something like this? What I was about to say, and I'm, I'm not sure it's well thought out, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think I would rather be the one person who dies to kill a Hitler than inside a hundred people to try and kill Hitler. As in, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to order a hundred people, people mm. if I could do it myself and go. At least if something goes wrong, it's only me that's dead. Mm. So I think my moral compass says, mm-hmm. try nonviolence first. If that's totally utterly impossible, use your own life to get a better outcome for others. But don't try and be a demagogic type leader and mm. persuade a hundred people to do the violence for me. Mm. That's the one I find most morally repugnant. Because it doesn't make you any better than... No. It just makes you another hack. And maybe you do get a utopian outcome, but most of history proves that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. So if you want to use transformative violence, I'm inclined to believe you have to be the one willing to bear the cost. Otherwise, you're potentially just going to be another person whose power will be corrupted. God, I'm into the horrible big ideas today. <laughs> so what do you think about you know, India and Gandhi, Peter? Mm. We never do anything easy, do we? No. Look, Gandhi is such an exceptional individual. And, you know, I've read historical critiques of him that critique elements of his personality mm. and his and his attitudes, um, of course, naturally. And it's and it's easy to kind of revere people as as saints and, and look over all of their um, their problems. But in terms of demonstrating to the world that such a thing were possible, I think it's it's difficult to underestimate Gandhi's mm. impact. Mm. He may not have been a nice guy. No. But wow, did he achieve amazing things. Exactly. And through and through nonviolence, which is bizarre, and the nonviolence was in itself, it, in fact, it seems to me, and I, I don't know a lot about it, it's one of the areas that I'd like to read quite a lot more about, but it seemed to me that his actions in some sense, and this is bizarre, acted as a mirror mm. to reflect the violence of the oppressors back onto them. Yeah. Not not to generate new violence, but to somehow... Make them reflect on it. Mm, exactly. So in a sense, he was providing the mirror so they could find out if they could suffer from moral injury, mm. if they could feel abhorred by what they'd done. Mm. And that's the power, I think... Of not being violent you see whether your opponent is still fundamentally human and modifiable or a brutal machine mm. which then gives you more information about your next step 
the pattern I'm seeing here is these acts of nonviolence seem to work extremely well when you're under an authoritarian regime or under a regime that is already being in some ways violent or um, ex ex let's say ex exploiting uh, you know the people under the regime in in a democracy now where there isn't there isn't really kind of authoritarian violence or I mean, it's, it's a democracy, right? So at least in Australia, mm. right? Let's take that example. Mm. The landscape is completely different. You don't really have violence on either side and it's kind of more just verbal aggression, I would say. Yeah. And, and like you guys you know, were talking about earlier, the, the idea that people on both sides are getting angrier and angrier. Mm. And is that because we're stuck? Mm. In that, you know, use the example of the young of, of uni students. You're inheriting a world where a lot of the resources have been used up. The climate's on the way to an unpleasant place. Job security is disappearing. Your hex debt might economically cripple you before you start. Mm. Uh, for non-Australian listeners, that's sort of our equivalent of a university debt. They're all things to be angry about. But at this point, they're not making life impossible. They're just making life uncomfortable. Mm. And uncomfortable could make people step up. Mm. So let's put the sort of relative deprivation argument in place here. Uh, Ted Robert Gurr's idea that there's two ways that people, people's expectations can be let down. They can expect the world should get better, and then it doesn't. That's bad enough. But the second is more dangerous, and that is they expect their life won't get worse. And I would argue that in Australia, we are on the cusp potentially of, okay, a lot of people can see that life is not necessarily going to get better, but life here was and is still very good. But are we on the cusp of... You know, the other expectation being dashed, and that is that actually life in Australia is just going to get harder and harder as we become economically more you know, irrelevant, that we have bigger and bigger climate-based disasters every year. You know, look, in the last two weeks in Australia, we've had hottest days on records, crazy flooding and fires in Tasmania that have gone six weeks. Mm. How do we economically and socially sustain this? With what do we manage this when this becomes year in, year out, decade in, decade out? Are we at the beginning of a period where we stop expecting it to be better, but also we start questioning, actually, is it now getting worse? Have both ends of our expectations been dashed? And is that where the anger is coming from? Mm. That people are starting to think, no, dreaming it could get better was nice, but thinking maybe it's going to get worse, that's the final straw. Mm -hmm. And I believe in a lot of societies that is the final straw. People want it to be better, but humans are adaptable. As long as it doesn't get worse, people can muddle through. Mm. But historically, when things get worse, that's when people just go, stuff it, mm. got to do something. So if we take the Russian example, you know, Russian industrialization was brutal. But things started getting marginally better because factory jobs started being 
a little bit better than being a serf on the land. You know, serf demanded, but again, essentially just became you know, more or less slavery, like in the US. Um, but then comes World War One. So any marginal gains in Russia for the working class and for peasants that have come from a growing economy, the rail network, just a few more tiny opportunities. World War I rips that away and throws Russian peasants and workers into a war against highly industrialized German-armed, you know, Austro-Hungarian German armies that annihilate them. Can't have better, now can't even have the same, it's all getting worse. Mm. That's the most amazing primer, it seems to me, mm. for revolution. It's bizarre. And, and you know, uh, uh, you can, you're welcome to disagree with me, Tim, but uh, I think I do sense a lot of this concern in people of our generation. You can look at, mm. you can look at the concern about home ownership, for mm. example, as, a, as the kind of the stereotypical death of the Australian dream, mm. insofar as that it's out of place, or at least many people our age feel like it's um, out of place for them over their lifetimes. In terms of what might be kind of fueling everything here, I, I, as a media student, I love looking at the technology. Mm. And specifically, you know, everyone knows how the internet works. These uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, whatever sites they are, they're all about generating revenue. And so they're going to be uh, putting near the top or putting in clearest view the things that you either agree with the most, most emphatically, or the things that you most emphatically disagree with. So you get the clicks either way. You know, so much of our media cycle, you've got a, a, you know, let's say in Australia, it's spun into left and right wing kind of media environments. Each little media microcosm gets kind of like a freak show of the absolute worst things that people on the other side have been saying. Mm. Mm. And and that, and it's this kind of, and they're, they're, they're not even proportionate. They're often not very well thought through. They're not proportionate of the opinions of the other side. But since the system is geared towards clicks, increasing clicks and increasing traffic. Uh, I think we're seeing this really uh, kind of centrifugal force that's uh, that's working on both sides here. That's mm. certainly not helping everyone come together politically to be able to achieve the little micro-revolutions that, that might placate people, I think, at least in this country. Yeah, because the social media, you consume it on your own device, on your own. And when you click it, Oh, 10,000 people clicked, and where, where's the consequence? Mm. So you can have 10,000 people respond to something, but nothing happens. And this is why I find it fascinating watching Get Up. Sometimes they can <laughs> genuinely make things happen, yeah. but nowhere near as often as is necessary to be a truly transformative force. And that's not their fault. It's the nature of the conjunction between a society that is essentially bought into greed is good, has bought into individualism and consumption as a way of defining itself, which means collective action is something from the past. Right, so collective action being that, uh, I believe you explained it very, very effectively to me earlier, which was uh, if you were to ask for a pay rise in your job, you wouldn't ask by yourself. No, not if you're, you're being used and abused. Mm. You need to ask with everyone. Look at the... The sort of transformation in the 19th century from no unions to unionism. Mm. All right, now here in Australia, we'll often throw around the line that in the main, you know, unions are 
the law students who want to go into labor politics later. <laughs> now, it's partially true, but it's also partially cruel mm. because unions still make sure that people are safe mm. in the same way that chambers of commerce provide a way for business owners to work together. Collectivity is the natural human state. We like having some individualism, but again, it's that thing. Do you want to be an individual or do you want to be alone? Mm. <laughs> Most of us will pick individualism, which is we want to be seen as ourselves and not having to be exactly like other people. But we want to be surrounded by people who see us, yeah, who identify yeah. us, who value <laughs> us, who care about us. You know, that stupid line from Ingrid Bergman and some of you, I want to be alone. Well, go be miserable on your own. So do you think that uh, just hearing those two concepts piecing them together rather simply seems as if the, the, let's say the media cycle or the polarization through uh, the way that we consume information is not uh, enabling us to for, band together to actually create collective action is that there's too much adversity is that to to band together to make any change is that kind of what i'm drawing or we just or? out of the habit of doing it mm. I mean, it's 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 just the, the the it seems to me like it might be something to do with the practical reality of Australian politics. If you're sure. a, if you're a, a Labor politician, the coalition needs to be doing everything wrong. You know, a, a coalition's denialism of let's say climate change is disastrous, what have you. And if you're in the coalition, you say that the Labor uh, Labor Party is reckless, spending, economically irresponsible, economically irresponsible mm. spending on climate change is the real disaster, and so on and so forth. And you can even make I think the the conservative arguments that I'm hearing now, compelling conservative arguments are that, yes, climate change is happening, but we need to still do the mathematics and find out how much we're spending on this thing compared to how much damage it's actually going to do and make mm. the decision based on based on that. So uh, I, I, think, I think the reason that we are not seeing this kind of um, uh, middle ground of people, this kind of swaying middle, swaying middle 60% in Australian politics is because the stakes have just continued to ratchet up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like doing a promotion for, for something. You know, it's always going to be the biggest and the best. And mm-hmm. I think we're seeing that in every subsequent election cycle. It's like the most pressing issues are, are, are happening here. And that's meaning that people are kind of spinning out more than drawing together. Um, mm. No one wins an election in Australia anymore. <laughs> the other side loses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's an important thing too. How do you get people to genuinely be involved and care when what they see is the side that wins doesn't really win? They're just less awful than the ones we kick out. Now, I don't think we've had a federal election in Australia probably since the late 80s. Mm where a party actually won. Really? Really. You know, Keating was kicked out. Howard didn't win. Yeah. Howard was kicked out. Rudd didn't win. Gillard was kicked out. Abbott didn't really win. Mm. Far out. It, yeah, it, it's just, it, it seems to me that there are these, that in Australia we have this kind of, most people see politics as this, uh, uh, as this exertion of two forces. Mm. There's the left and the right, and they're playing a tug of war to pull the ribbon over the line to see who's, to see who's in power. But it's always struck me, and it's probably just because I'm a weirdo, that's probably why I'm here, that that's not the most effective way to go about it. You need to see at least four dimensions, which is if your side that you're pulling for isn't doing well, you need to be prepared to pull against them. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise you're going to see this, like in any system, you're going to see this degradation over time. 
Um, and I think that that is really what's hurting politics is that nobody is willing to say, actually, my team have a lot of work to do. I don't yeah. want to vote for them next election because they're bad on this and this and this and this and this. But nobody is willing to do that these days. Well, I'd have to say for the first time in you know my adult life, our next federal election, for the first time ever, I'm thinking of just voting informally mm. because both sides are so freaking bad yeah. that I cannot see any capacity in the normal structure of Australian politics for meaningful collective action as part of the democracy. Mm-hmm. The right don't represent what I believe in. The left don't represent what I believe in. The small parties are too narrowly defined and as a consequence morphed out of shape on anything but their core issues. So this is an incredible thing about collective action or the current lack of it. To have collective action, you all have to see you're facing the same problem and reach the conclusion that only together with a shared vision is different possible. Yeah, the moment it seems the standard thing on all sides is no one's entirely happy, but no one wants to admit yet it's actually bad enough to need something new or different. Whereas it was quite clear in the early 19th century, yeah, industrialism was going to smash people unless people came together. Mm this was enough of a motivator for people to go, no, can't win on my own, can't improve it on my own. And all these people around me are suffering the same things. It's not getting better and it could get worse. We must come together, come up with something we can all support. So what happens when it doesn't work? You know, I, I, a very specific example just because it's in an area of interest for me, a very specific example comes to mind, which would be the automotive building industry in the UK during, I believe, what would be the 70s mm. or an 80s when basically every everyone unionized, they all went on strike and then then all the import cars just came and destroyed effectively any kind of, uh, while they were weak and striking, yeah, the import cars just basically destroyed any manufacturing. In yeah, you've got to something really important there and that is now. It doesn't just matter what's happening in your country mm. because once your economy has been linked, you'll be swamped if you don't switch on. Mm. So while you're busy trying to transform things, someone else imports something cheap, customers just need a car because customers don't see the reason to have solidarity with the worker on strike. So local movements now are at the whim of global trade mm. and you know global trade has some huge advantages but if humans don't manage it it steamrolls people who want better lives mm. and yet we again it's back to where we started the idea that capitalism's pulled more people out of poverty than anything else mm. but capitalism that is held to social account a capitalism that is not allowed to you know, cause both ends of relative deprivation. So, yeah, the UK in the 70s is fascinating in that you've got a country who survived World War II, come out the other end on the winning side, had an exodus of young talent to the Commonwealth going, this place is going to take too long to rebuild, don't want to be under rationing, don't want to be here for the rebuilding. You've got multiple industries in the 70s still running machines from the 40s because there's no investment. Mm. You've got people wanting to unionise because 
The class system has been so devastating over centuries and that is no longer acceptable, particularly after the war has been won by everyone together. So class is not acceptable to be a division anymore in the same way it had been acceptable. Economic development has to be different and yet you're, you've got a global market. You've got the deliberate choice to bring Europe together so that it can't tear itself apart, or at least that's the logic. So uh, you know, Churchill's argument, even at the end of the war, is there is probably going to have to be something like the European Union so that the Europeans don't kill each other. Mm. <laughs> and that the UK is going to need to be in this, not because it wants to, but because it's better to be in it and shape it than not shape it. So all you dumb, dumb Brexiteers out there, <laughs> look back at your most amazing Prime Minister who saw Europe is a mess, but it's better to be in the mess and shape the mess than to be dealing with the consequences of a mess you're not in. Because <laughs> they're talking about making European Union armies, right? I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, it's a nice, a nice dream. <laughs> yeah, okay. If we're waiting for that to happen, you know, Russia will own the whole lot. <laughs> well, either way, slightly scary, I think. Yeah, yeah but definitely. again, this is this thing of you know, collective action by the 70s. Say, for example, in, in Western democracies, using mm. the UK as an example, mm. is one industry going, we want better lives, mm. but no longer able to connect with enough of the society as a whole for it to be transformative and to hold the line against the power of the movement of capital and goods across national borders. I feel that here now. Like I feel like I've been, let's say, lied to by the, the farmers' uh, kind of campaigns that we, we should always support you know, Australian farmers, you know, go buy the expensive milk, all that kind of thing. You know, that's this is coming from the perspective of a vegan, mind you, but like... And this is perhaps there's a cultural shift in Australia. I think that being patriotic in this country is somewhat racist, but I don't feel when I don't feel as much sympathy as I think I would have ten years ago to like the the farmer situation. And it, and that actually, yeah, I feel slightly bad about that now. Thinking about you know that could end up having the same consequences as it did for cars in in the UK. Okay, well let's put a spin on that. And mm. okay, yeah. Your partner's vegan. Mm -hmm. Do you guys go to um, the farmer's market on Sundays at the showgrounds? Yeah, well, we, we support, let's say, fruit markets. We don't go to, like, as in fruit and veg markets. Yeah, yeah. Not the, instead of supermarkets. No, yeah. no, like the, the big mm. one at the showgrounds, we which don't, is all local produce, and you're buying yeah. from the grower. We don't, yeah, we don't do that. Whereas yeah. I would say that what is happening is mm. something interesting that John Newhouse wrote about in Europe in the late 90s in a book called Europe Adrift, where he made the argument that the idea of a supranational identity makes sense for sort of safety. So being European at one end, mm. but being a Parisian at the other, mm. or being a Bavarian rather than a German. So he thought, and I, you know, he largely got it wrong because of what's happened after, <laughs> that people would either have a supranational identity or very local, the national would be the illogical one. And what I would argue is part of what we may be seeing here in Australia, where we haven't had the upheavals of the GFC of a migrant crisis mm. like Europe, mm. is it still means something to be Australian, but more and more we're getting a global sense of environment and resources. 
But at the same point, we're getting more of a local sense of, well, if you want good quality food as cheap as possible, you go to the farmer's market on Sunday Mm. and you buy direct from the grower so you can have the best quality at the lowest price with the fewest people in the middle. Mm. So essentially we've got a global perspective on the crisis facing us and a local perspective on the solutions we can comprehend. Maybe that's new. I don't know. That's brilliant. Or is it old? Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, well, I'm not sure. But, I mean, there's certainly been, and, and this is the type of thing that I absolutely love, um, because it's it's nonpartisan. You know, when you go to the, uh, the, the supermarket, you see something in plastic wrap, you mm. think, no thanks, actually, I'll go to the deli, I'll get mm. it wrapped in paper. Yeah. How about that instead? And that these are these little changes that you can make that actually have a huge effect collectively and that these attitudes can be organized collectively yeah. and thank goodness in a somewhat well, a somewhat nonpartisan way you know I, I do think that there is a change in people's behavior towards some elements gosh and let's look that if phones are isolating us because we look at our own screen mm. food is probably one of the most social things left mm. you know we we don't like eating alone that's very true. given a choice and to go to the sunday morning farmers market you know, for listeners outside of Adelaide, our showgrounds is not far from the centre of the city and on Sundays it's used for a farmer's market where a whole big, huge car park and one of the pavilions are full of fresh produce. And the rule is only things can be sold at it that are grown or made in South Australia. So you will not find a pineapple or a banana or a sweet potato because they're not grown here. <laughs> Whereas you'll have... Local uh, wine and cider companies will have a stand or, you know, a local uh, small goods company will have sort of sausages and bacon. Mm. And what you see is lots of people say hi to the stalls they regularly get stuff from and a few people they recognize. And it's a very loose collectivism, but it's got a lovely happy buzz. Mm. And that has no political lining whatsoever. And I No, think- because it's such a diverse group of people. Yeah. People can be doing it simply because they want the best quality bargain mm. by buying straight from the grower or the farmer. Mm. Or they can be doing it on highly ethical grounds or on highly environmental grounds mm. of wanting to buy you know, organic produce at the best possible price. Mm. So it seems to be that multiple small collectivisms or tribes have found a way to be in one place at one time and maybe it's out of food rather than the factory you know if the factory was the driver of collectivism in the 19th century maybe food will be the driver in the 21st Uh, you know you guys ever sort of pay attention to fair trade stuff like buy fair trade coffee Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah now fair trade is pretty much shit you know its gains aren't big (laughs) <laughs> but they're better than not. Mm. You, know, you go into fair trade and the the gains are certainly there, but they're not huge. Mm. You're paying a significant amount more for someone to get a small gain as a grower in Africa or South America. Mm. But is it still worth doing? Or at least for me, yes. This has been the podcast of mm. small inevitable gains. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know, again, yeah, Dave Brailsford's idea of marginal, marginal losses. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, sorry, marginal gains. Yes. Again, I'm the one that wrote about marginal losses. <laughs> and that's the problem of the world we're in. Um <laughs> So, yeah, really, re-socialization is necessary mm. to regain collective action. 
and the combination of things like farmers markets and again for non-Adelaide listeners we're going through a strange renaissance in Adelaide at the moment of all these little alleyways in the CBDs Mm. we're getting pop-up bars pop-up hamburger places pop-up pizza places and the basic rule is you need to be able to get a meal and a nice beverage for about 30 bucks combined Mm. and you'll see people eating in these places seven nights a week yeah they're always busy Mm. and you know, people go, oh, is it amazing? It's a renaissance. And you go, look out at the suburbs, they're dead. Mm. Look at the house market. Most of the people who are spending this money are spending this money because they've given up saving for the house. Yeah. They're spending the 60 on them and their partner having dinner rather than putting 50 of it in the bank and making a 10-buck meal at home. Mm. So it's beautiful that it's leading to socialisation, which can lead to collectivism, which can lead to collective action, which can lead to more ethical sourcing of produce and environments you go to. But it's perhaps our way of dealing with the relative deprivation. Things aren't getting better in the conventional way of earn lots of money and buy your big house in the suburbs. But can you have nice experiences that you share with nice people? Is that a substitute to make up for a level of relative deprivation? I would argue yes, and maybe after today's conversation, rather than just enjoy it, I'm actually going to credit it with maybe being the beginning of a transformative (laughs) collective force. Mm -hmm. And as one of the people who loves the awesome $20 hamburger or pizza and the 10 buck killer, (laughs) you know, sort of small brewery beer, rock on. Mm. This level of experience that comes from this is critical to my sense of feeling there's some level of soft, not very politically focused collectivism out there that at least makes people remember that other people matter Mm. in person, Mm. not by clicking through a screen. And the best bit about that is it's not necessarily coming through some media media channel either where yeah. you're not you don't really feel like you're being lied to it's it is it is collective in that it's all it's like word of mouth almost yeah. these kinds of things well, you guys are, you know what what's your sort of connection to the kind of you know bar cafe in little street scene well quite strong between peter and i we used to catch up for coffee in alleyways uh, quite regularly <laughs> yeah, words, you, you know, it's like a word of mouth thing you hear, mm. or oh, there's this great little spot or something, and mm. you, you know, you go and check it out, and yeah. that's always a buzz. Yeah, uh, Peter showed me a restaurant in, uh, well, yeah, a, a lovely Indian restaurant that now Jade and I visit very regularly. Oh, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Which one's that? Come on, free adverts for places we like. Uh, oh, right, well, it's a uh, it's a uh, Rajontage on uh, on Unley Road. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, no, no, it's Chefs um, of Tandoori. Uh, chefs of Tandoori. Tandoori pardon me. Yeah. Okay. Go and see. Go and visit Rajontage as well. But no, Chefs of Tandoori on Unley Road. If mm. you're an Adelaidean, you've absolutely got to give them a try. Mm. They're wonderful people. Absolutely. Um, go and check them out. You won't regret <laughs> it. <laughs> See, this is the thing. We just got to do adverts for things we like because why the hell not? I'm going to send the podcast to uh, um, to chefs of Tandoori now. Yeah. yeah, look, man, as long as we get you free poppadoms every week, mm, that's awesome. Mm, mm. Well, we could always do a podcast from there. Oh, that sounds good. That's a great idea. Live at lunch. Yeah. <laughs> we know we're, we're at risk of actually coming to a reasonably positive place with this Oh, podcast. please, let this be so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> You know, so so what are we? We're kind of touching on that that we have the opportunity to be able to create these little micro communities. And what I love about the farmers market thing is that everybody wins. The yes, farmer wins. Everybody the wins. The vendor wins. The uh, people who are there at the market win. Um, and we can use the incredible 
technology that we have to be able to spread these things. And hopefully, because they're, um, let's say, uh, they're not politically motivated, they're just... Uh, Socially uh, and ethically motivated. Well, yeah, but also um, yeah. in terms of just goods, in terms of just benefits accrued to, to, to you as a consumer or, or whatever. And so it's a it's a win-win situation for everyone. And hopefully... We see a lot more of that uh, creative ingenuity. That would be fantastic. Yeah, it will have to be a new kind of collective action mm. to suit its time because redemptive violence is always appealing mm. but is rarely transformative, mm. whereas collective action is normally transformative because it holds people to account and it provides what we are talking about before. You know, if you don't hit the violent person back, maybe there's a chance they will reflect on their violence and suffer moral injury and stop. Whereas, you know, the minute you use violence, everyone's on. It's totally legit. Mm. Everyone can be involved. Now, what we don't want is anyone that's hyper-political going into these far farmers' markets and handing out pamphlets. And I think that... <laughs> I suppose that will be the next logical step is it will be realized. Mm. Here is an ethical community thinking about what kind of world they want to live in maybe not in political terms but in terms of what they eat and who they want to patronize mm. and that that is the beginning of political action and it becoming more politicized perhaps is inevitable mm. and also when mainstream politics is corrosive and corroded you know, it's got to start somewhere mm. again why is podcasting just huge why are people wanting to listen to other people's opinion? Why do people listen to the three of us? Other than there is some desire to see the potential for the interesting and the transformative. Why else does it exist? Mm. Well, I certainly know why they want to listen to the two of you. And that's because you've been incredibly fascinating today. So... Uh, as cheesy as that is, uh, thank you very much for for joining us. Do we have any last comments? Oh, only that it's been uh, such a pleasure to be back, and you're also uh, very wonderful to talk to and listen to as well. <laughs> I you. think we just did an awesome job, all three of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we got to this point. Well, if you have any questions or want us to address anything, any suggestions, even I'd, we'd love to hear them. You can contact us at Tim Whiffen, T I M W H I double F for Freddie E N at OzcastNetwork.com. Cheers for that, guys. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Hello, listeners. You didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music, did you? I'm here today to say we now have merchandise. You can have a Blind Insights t-shirt. You can have a Blind Insights pin. You can have a Blind Insights hoodie. You can have a Blind Insights coffee cup. All you need to do is go to auscast-network.myshopify.com and click on Bind Insights and you can see all our products. Thank you very much to the Auscast Network for their support and making this happen.